invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort, and all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake who suff- of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's the first Sunday of a new year, and if you're anything like me, uh, I trust that you might be thinking in terms of New Year's resolutions or New Year's goals. Perhaps there's things that you want to be different as we turn the page from 2020 to 2021. Maybe they're very practical things. Maybe uh, over the course of this year, you've put on some weight that you would like to lose. Maybe you want to start a new workout program. Maybe there's just things that you want to be more efficient at. Perhaps some of your goals, some of your resolutions are more spiritually oriented. Perhaps you want this to be a year where you are grounded in the Word, perhaps like never before. Maybe this is the year that you want to read all the way through the Bible. And by the way, what a great time to start something like that. And if that's something that you desire to do, I'll just say on our website we have uh, a link to a number of great reading plans Um, Certainly not the only way to read the Bible, but I think oftentimes when we don't have some sort of reading plan, we end up reading our five, six, seven favorite books of the Bible over and over again, and something like this forces us to go through 2 Chronicles, you know, 1 Kings, some of the books that maybe aren't your your go-tos. So maybe this is a year you want to read through the Bible. Maybe it's a year you really want to grow as a man or woman of prayer, and you've got some specific goals set out there. Maybe scripture memory. 
Well, this morning I'd like to encourage us to add one more thing to our list of resolutions. And if you don't have resolutions, I'd like to encourage us to have at least this one if it's not already there. The addition would be the pursuit of genuine repentance of the sin that we've fallen into or maybe even started giving ourselves a free pass on. Perhaps in the midst of 2020, we've fallen into patterns of angry outbursts. Perhaps we've fallen into patterns of lust, uh, maybe a lack of self-control in a number of different areas from eating too much or partaking of too much alcohol, trying to fill a void in our lives through things like binge-watching of Netflix or YouTube videos or whatever. Maybe it's sins like pride, anxiety, a lack of thankfulness, failure to forgive, selfishness, impatience, silent judgmentalism, gossip, slander, envy, jealousy, worldliness, and the list could keep going, right? And I'm saying we want to pursue a genuine repentance of these sins because all too often the Lord will reveal a sin in our lives. Maybe there's the conviction of sitting under a sermon, or maybe it's conviction of just reading the Word or a loving rebuke of a spouse or even a child, and we feel badly about it for a time, perhaps even grieve over it a bit, but in the end we do little to nothing about it and simply continue on as though nothing's changed. And as believers, we don't want to stay here. We want to understand what is true repentance. What does it look like? How do I go about pursuing it? And in order to dig into this, I invite you to turn with me to the passage we just read a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 7, which is a very important and very helpful passage as we think about the nature of true repentance. While you're turning there, let me just say a couple of things about the background of what we're about to study together. If you know anything about the Corinthian church you know that it was a very difficult church for Paul. He planted this church on his second missionary journey, but somewhere after he left, things went wrong. False teachers crept in who who not only taught aberrant theology in certain areas, but they were also very negative towards Paul. They had this don't follow Paul mentality, he's a jerk, we're awesome sort sort of thing going on. And there was also moral failure uh, within this church. All you got to do is read 1 Corinthians 5 for some really uh, gross stuff, quite frankly. In light of all of this, at some point after writing what we know of as 1 Corinthians, Paul sent Timothy, one of his traveling partners, back to the Corinthians to check in on them, and he had a terrible visit. So, Paul himself went in response to that, and he too had what was a really painful visit. And so, when, when he left and he went back to Ephesus where he had been ministering, he, he then sends Titus back to Corinth once more with a letter, not first or second Corinthians, but a letter that theologians read. letter was obviously a stern rebuke to the Corinthians and the Lord clearly worked through it gloriously, as we'll see 
as we dig into the passage. So 2 Corinthians 7, I'll begin by rereading verses 5 through 7. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Again, lots of bad stuff going on in the Corinthian church. Not least were the false teachers seeking to turn people against Paul. I mean, there was, if you read the text, read 2 Corinthians, you can really pick up on this. There's some Absalom stuff going on, right? Oh, come to us. We're the, we're the super apostles. We're the ones who really know what's, what's going on. Paul's a bad guy. Don't listen to him. And thus, they had been turning people against Paul and the historic gospel which he taught. So Paul sent this severe letter to correct them, and as a result of the behavior of the Corinthians after the sending of this letter, Paul says, even when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, so conflicts coming from the outside, fears within. We, we often talk about the conflicts Paul went through, right? They're legendary, beatings, shipwrecks, and all of that, but we often don't think of the internal struggle this man went through. He had, he had sent them, at this point, a severe letter, no doubt, feeling a concern. How would they respond? Would they actually repent? Or would it cause them too much grief? I mean, nobody likes to grieve people just for the sake of grieving somebody unless they're twisted. Uh, perhaps he felt like the relationship was on the line. So indeed, he was concerned. He was worried. These are the concerns of a pastor. And more importantly, because their relationship with Paul the Apostle was inextricably tied to the relationship with the Lord Jesus, who Paul was an ambassador for, he was obviously concerned most about what this said regarding where the Corinthians were with Jesus. Could it be that all of that work in Corinth was in vain? Again, he was a pastor at heart. He planted that church. He was burdened for those people. Ah, but then at the return of Titus, so many of these fears were assuaged. Titus came back and reported to Paul that the Corinthians were, were longing for him. Something had happened, right? They were longing to see him again. They were, they were mourning, and in context, almost certainly mourning of their sin toward him. Not least some of their other sin, but certainly read the context. Some of it is their, their sin towards him. And as a result of all of this, Paul says he he rejoiced all the more. And then in verses 8 through 13, he goes on to explain precisely why he rejoiced the way he did. Look back at the text. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what 
earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was for the sake not of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Now we see why Paul says he was rejoicing. Beginning in verse 8, he says, even if I made you grieve by my letter, and again, that's the severe letter, the one in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, even though I made you grieve with that letter, he says, I don't regret it, though I did. I mean, again, you can see the turmoil, right? Though I don't, though I did, for I see that it grieved you, though only for a little while. And then in verse 9, he says, as it is, I now rejoice. And again, he makes it clear He's not rejoicing because he made him sorrowful, but here he says, I rejoice precisely because you were grieved to the very point of repentance. I would encourage you to circle that in your Bible if you're one who writes in your Bible. Paul rejoiced because they were grieved to the point of repentance. Again, Paul's not rejoicing because he made him sad. No, no one likes causing pain for the sake of causing pain, but sometimes, as is the case here, we're willing to do so for the good of the other person. Sometimes we're willing to cause a level of pain because we know that on the other end, there's that potential of a very positive response. And in verse 10, he goes on to emphasize that it's not the grief itself that's important, but the repentance He does this by comparing godly grief, some of your translations, godly sorrow, and worldly sorrow. And if you've you've tuned out at all here, please come back for this because this is vital. Paul asserts that godly grief produces repentance without regret leading to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces only death. So don't miss what Paul's doing here. In verse 10, he wants us to be absolutely, positively clear, grief is not to be equated with repentance. Let me say that again. This is so important. Grief is not to be equated with repentance. We can feel terribly about our sin for a multiplicity of reasons. We can get all torn up inside, even shed countless tears, and never come to genuine repentance. And our inspired writer is helping us understand why. See, there's, there's both a grief that leads to repentance and a grief that leads to death. Both are grief. Again, there can be pain, turmoil, all sorts of stuff with either. But one is from God and the other is not. And the clearest way Scripture's telling us we tell the difference is whether or not this grief ends in repentance, whether or not it produces change in our lives. And that's why Paul points to their actions in verses 11 through 13. See, his, his, his comfort in the good report is no longer just wishful thinking. His comfort flows from his recognition that there's been a change in heart and a change in actions. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. 
What, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. See, Paul points to their, their changed attitudes. He points to their changed actions as support that theirs was a godly grief over their sin that led to repentance. Theirs was an earnestness in those Titus had reported on. There, there was a desire among them to clear themselves. There was indignation on their part over their sin. At every point, Paul says, they proved themselves innocent in the matter. There was a change. There was repentance. And in all of this, Paul says there at the beginning of verse 13 that he was comforted. He was comforted to see God working in their lives. He was comforted, again, as a church planter, as a pastor, because he's now seen evidence of God's working in their life. He's seen evidences of God's grace in bringing at least some of the Corinthians to genuine repentance. And he was clear how vital this is in our lives. And so we learn a lot here in God's Word about the nature of true repentance. And we see that there's a vital difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And as we kind of drill down on this idea of what repentance really looks like in our lives, I think the first thing Scripture is pushing us to be clear on is the ability to distinguish between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow in our own lives and in the lives of those that we're maybe discipling or caring for or mentoring. And to do that, I want us to think through some diagnostic questions. So first, here's an overarching question as you're wrestling with what kind of grief am I dealing with in my life over my sin? The question is this, is my grief over sin fundamentally self-oriented? In other words, do I grieve over my sin because of the pain or problems it's caused me? You could ask it like this. Is the reason for your grief because it's caused you unwanted ramifications? Perhaps someone caught you in a particular sin, and now there's cleanup. Uh, perhaps your sin left a wake of relational damage, and you're grieving fundamentally over the fact that that's going to cost you, right? It's going to take now a lot of time and effort to rebuild that relationship. And it's sort of the outburst of the insensitive husband. Oh, great, look what I've caused now. Now I've got to deal with this for the next three days. Well, if that's the case where my grief over a particular sin is fundamentally me-oriented, I hate what it's caused for me, then you can rest assured you're dealing with worldly grief. See, if, if my grief is me-centered, if it's all about me, that's already an indicator that it's not good, right? If my grief is God-centered, then it could well be on the way to what Paul's talking about here, godly grief, though there's still an important question that would follow on that. Here's the question there. Does your grief that you've offended God, now notice I'm switching it, right? Now there's a God-centered understanding. You say, where does that come from? Well, how about David after sinning with 
Bathsheba and then bumping off her husband Uriah and you come to Psalm 51 and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. And the reader could say, hold on a second, what's your problem, David? Are you a moron? I mean, you sinned against her, you sinned against him, you sinned against both of their families. David's no moron. David clearly understood that. He understood that his sin first and foremost was against God, right? And so the question is, does our grief that we've offended God bring about a change of attitude and action where our desires and our actions start to change? Or does our grief lead to sort of a paralysis? In other words, you're grieved when you see your sin, but you just sort of wallow in it, right? I've blown it again. I suck. I'm a loser. I'll never measure up. God will never take me back but you don't do anything about it. So the question is, does your grief bring about a change in attitude and actions? And if so, then according to this passage of Holy Scripture, you're dealing with godly grief. For as Paul says, grief from God produces repentance. It leads to change. And of course, classic biblical example of this is the prodigal son, right? Dad, I want my inheritance, give it to me now, and he goes off and he squanders it and he's a complete idiot and he comes to the end and he goes back and humbles himself. Dad, I've sinned against you. There's no arrogance, there's no throw me some more cash, just be a slave in your house, right? There's a, there's a repentance. Or, or 1 Thessalonians 1 is a great picture where Paul commends the Thessalonians for they turned away from idols to God, right? There's a turning away from something, a turning to something, a turning to God. And so, I invite you to consider an area where you've perhaps recently experienced conviction. Again, could have been through a recent sermon, could have been through your daily devotions, could have been through the loving words of a spouse or child. question for you is, after that initial conviction, did anything change in your life? Or does it basically look the same as it did before? And if the answer is, yes, you were grieved, but nothing's really happened, then you need to be honest with yourself, according to this text, and admit that you're probably still in the realm of worldly grief. And, and, and let's be clear, Christians can experience worldly grief. In fact, I'd submit to you we do it far more often than than we'd like to admit. If our grief over sin doesn't produce a change in our desires, our attitudes, and our actions, then Scripture is telling us we're dealing with worldly sorrow. And so, brothers and sisters, what sin might we need to think about this year in terms of godly sorrow leading to repentance? Again, go back to some of the things we talked about at the beginning. Perhaps there's been some sexual sin, perhaps some internet pornography. Oh, perhaps not full-blown pornography, but boy, awfully close. Somehow you've been justifying it. Maybe you've fallen into a habit of gossip. Maybe fallen into slander, talking negatively about a brother and sister in Christ. Perhaps you've developed some patterns of deceitfulness in 2020. How about unforgiveness? 
mean, read the Bible. This one's so dangerous for the soul. Or are you harboring bitterness toward anyone even now? When you hear somebody talk about them, do you cringe? If you hear that they're coming over, do you not want to be in the same place? What about some of the so-called more respectable sins? The ones that we all sort of give each other a little wink, wink, nod, nod, no big deal. We all struggle with it. How about pride, selfishness, kind of thinking the world revolves around us? At least my home should, right? Hey, brothers and sisters, we, we don't want to be like the little child whose mom says, tell them you're sorry, and they're like, sorry about that, and nothing changes. We want to be people experiencing godly grief on these sin issues in our life. Let us be grieved over the fact that our sin is an affront to God, and let's repent and strive to walk in His ways. And by the way, here's an important qualification. If you fall back into a particular sin that you've been experiencing some victory in, that doesn't mean that your repentance was not genuine. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, just uh, the same thing, it's all been worldly sorrow. No, it means you need to repent again. We all have what the Puritans used to refer to as besetting sins, right? Those particular areas of weakness that's going to be different for me than they are for you and for the next person that, that honestly will end up fighting our entire life. But even here, we want to make sure we're taking dead aim at these, that we're genuinely sorry that we've offended God and seek by His grace to make, process, to make progress in these areas through repentance, might not always be as fast as we'd like, and anybody who's been in Christ for any period of time know what I'm talking about, but there is progress. Well, let's keep pushing. As Christians, we understand that we have been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been made right with God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. We understand that in God's sight, we are saints, as the New Testament calls us. We've got to embrace that. Yet we also understand that the old nature is still there, and so we sin every day. But we don't pacify ourselves for our sin, right? We can fall into error on either side. We can just beat ourselves up and f focus only on that, or we can just say, oh, no big deal, I'm just a sinner, everybody does it, just no problem. No, the New Testament doesn't allow for either. As saints, remember, every sin is contrary to who we are in Christ, unless we want to repent. So how do we do that? And here's another important question. Does God do that, or do I do that? And it leads to the second point of application, and that is we must understand both God's sovereignty and my responsibility when it comes to repentance. Here we need to be clear that repentance is both, biblically speaking, you see these texts all over the place, repentance is both a gift of God and something we must pursue with all of our might. Repentance in the Scriptures we see is a gift just like the gift of faith, right? We say faith and works are two sides of the same coin, same thing with repentance. Re repentance is a divine gift. Consider 2 Timothy 2, 
Uh, and there's a number of other passages. But 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, if perhaps God, God, may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And again, there's a bunch of other passages that we could go to where you see the same thing. Repentance is a sovereign gift of God. It's a gift, just like saving faith. That said, that in no way means that we aren't to seek this, to pursue it with every fiber of our beings. Just like saving faith, where we're called to pursue faith, right? Jesus says, seek, ask, knock, keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. We're all commanded, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me is the command there. And the same is certainly true regarding repentance. In Acts 26, 20, Paul is talking to Agrippa, describing the heavenly calling that he had been given and the mission he had been given and how he had been faithful to it. And then he describes how he exhorts people to repentance. And he says in Acts 26, 20, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also the Gentiles, that they should repent command. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So, we also see that repentance is commanded. And thus, there's a both and in the Scriptures. There's a, there's a healthy tension, as we so often see. Throughout the Bible, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are held in tension. They're put forth before us as compatible. We might not understand completely with our finite minds how this is true, but the Bible constantly holds it out for us. And, and so, real practically, when we think about pursuing repentance for our sin, we might say we should pray fervently for the gift of repentance. Lord, help me to repent, all the while fighting with every fiber of our being. And if, by God's grace, we see repentance in our lives… We thank God for it rather than patting ourselves on the back. Look what I've accomplished. Now, Philippians 2 is such a helpful passage here, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work, willing, working for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation, command, God's at work even at the level of the will. See, God does indeed grant repentance, but we're called to pursue it on a daily basis. And as we think about this working, this basic working out of salvation, then we want to be clear that with repentance, we must work at turning away from something to something else. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we remove something, sin, and put something else in its place. And here I like the picture of a garden as an analogy here. Some of you like to garden. I do not. Part of the reason I don't like it is because it's hard work, quite frankly. And intrinsically, I'm not that excited about it, so it's just too much work. And one of the reasons I don't like to garden is because I'd like to go out and just do it all in one day, really put in a lot of work, and just be done with it. But any of you who garden know that's just not how it works. You have to tend to it every day. It's ongoing, right? There's this pulling of weeds. There's this planting and all of this. And so, with the garden analogy, consider your life for a moment as a garden. 
Consider sin in your life as the weeds that you fight in your garden. No one wants weeds in their garden. But if you pull all the weeds, sort of a one-and-done kind, kind of thing, and walk away, we all know what happens. A few days or weeks, weeds will be right back where we pulled them. Because what we need to do is not only pull the weeds, but we need to plant new seeds. Now, that doesn't mean the new crop that comes in gets rid of the weeds completely, but if you've ever pulled weeds and planted grass, for example, you know that that good crop, if I can use that as an analogy, helps prevent the weeds from coming up as much. And I think this is a helpful analogy as we're thinking about repentance. See, we don't just turn away from something, while that's important, but there is another step. Again, I think of 1 Thessalonians, they turned away from their idols, but they didn't just turn away from their idols, they turned to God. And in keeping with the gardening metaphor, we might think in terms of pulling the weeds of sin and planting, say, the fruit of the Spirit. For example, if one of my besetting sins is selfishness, I want to root out selfishness, but I must put something in. I want to put on Love, for example, love for Christ, love for the brethren, and and thus I become so focused on loving and serving others that selfishness gradually weakens. It it shrinks, do do, do you see? I can't can't just say, self, don't be selfish. Stop being selfish. Because the moment I do that, which by the way, it's almost a selfish statement in and of itself because it's just me focused, but the moment I do that, I'm back to thinking about myself. That said, as we think about repentance of certain sins in our lives, we should be asking then the question, what do I need to replace this particular sin with? What, what, what fruit of the Spirit should go there instead? What godly characteristic needs to be planted in place of what I'm trying to weed out? more important, or not more important, but also important, sticking with the gardening metaphor just a bit longer. Most of us know if you go in and you just lop off the tops of the weeds, it doesn't do a whole lot, right? I learned that as a kid. Mom sent me out. I decided I'd use the weed whacker. I thought it'd be a lot faster. And dad wasn't too happy when like two days later, the weeds were about the same length. They just just pop right back up. Brothers and sisters, the same is true with sin in our lives. And as we think about really fighting for genuine repentance of the sin in our life that grieves us, then we need to learn to distinguish between a root sin and a fruit sin. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine for a moment a Christian high school football coach, godly guy, got into coaching because he wanted to help people, and he, he gets a job at a program that, that, quite frankly, they've stunk for the last 25 years. And he goes in, and, and he, he's coaching the kids. He's teaching them good football, but he's also, he's also pointing kids to Christ. He's having conversations with kids. He, he's helping them start a, a Bible study, and, and he's putting effort into the, the program. What he doesn't realize is he's spending a lot of time there at work, not a whole lot of time at home. But, you know, he starts winning. People start telling him how great he is, how great the program is, how much they love having him around. And so he's spending more time, you know, Saturday game film, Sunday focusing on, on things, less time at home. And 
man, they have a great season. He ends up winning the state championship, but a dear friend, a dear brother comes up to him and says, you know, brother, I'm so thankful for you here. We rejoice in a state championship, but I've noticed you're not spending any time at home, and your wife's not doing well, and your kids seem like they're not doing well. And again, Christian man, so he's very convicted by this. In fact, so convicted that after praying about it, he, he realizes that coaching has become an idol. And so he decides to quit coaching. He, just, he decides, I, I, I need to remove this idol from my life. And so he quits coaching. And instead, he takes a job and goes on staff with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. What a great opportunity, getting to serve the Lord. And he goes into Fellowship of Christian Athletes, this chapter that not been doing so great, and he starts to turn things around, and people start to tell him what an awesome job that he's doing and how much they love having him around, and before too long, once again, he's not spending a whole lot of time at home. And I I trust you see the point. He, He took repentance very seriously, but he never understood what the root sin in his life was. See, sin is deceptive, and we must get down and try to understand where our sin is coming from, or else perhaps we'll never really make a dent in what's really going on. So, here's one way forward that I would submit to you. When the Lord reveals sin in my life, which is painfully often, I try to step back and ask, where's that coming from? What's, what's the root So, for instance, if I'm being short with one of my kids, I could just say, you know what, I'm an angry guy. I come from a long line of angry guys. Self, stop being short with the kids. And perhaps in trying not to be short with the kids, maybe I kick the dog later. Or or maybe, here's a a great one, maybe I just stuff it and walk around sulking all day because everybody in the house loves that, right? Didn't yell, though. No. See, being short with people is a sin in and of itself that needs to be confessed specifically and repented of, but what if that sin in that moment had basically nothing to do with that child and everything to do with my own anxiety flowing from my own pride? Let me see if I can explain. In this analogy, pride is the root sin. Here I, King Chris, know what's best in my life. And so I make plans. Nothing wrong with planning. The Bible commends planning to us. But it's when we hold on to our particular plans really tightly and God starts to change the direction. And so King Chris makes grand plans for what the next weeks or months or whatever are going to look like. And God starts to move it in a little bit of a different direction. And I start holding on tighter and tighter and get more anxious about it. And now I'm all tied up in knots, and I come home, and what should be fun noises of kids are irritating. And what should be something cute makes me mad. And then the squabble between those two kids becomes the tipping point when in reality, all they really needed was five minutes of faithful parenting. And see, if I only dealt with the shortness in that moment, I would only be dealing with a fruit sin, and in this particular scenario, it would just pop right back up quickly and repeatedly, and I know that from personal experience. See, it's vital to take the extra step and ask, where is this really coming from? What's what's the root sin here? 
And then you have to ask, what do I need to replace that with in my life as I walk through this process of repentance? And brothers and sisters, all this takes work. It goes back to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That never says it's easy. Yes, God has to work. He's at work even at the level of the will. He brings in conviction. But we have to work. And I can tell you right now, you're not going to do this in front of the TV. You're not going to do it plugged into your iPod. You're not going to do it on social media, watching videos or whatever, because it's too hard. This process happens on your knees, in prayer, in the Word, and it happens interacting with other believers, which leads to the last point of application, and I'm going to be quick here. We need to be humble. None of us see ourselves clearly, and so we need to interact with others that we trust on the sin in our life. We need someone who would be willing to hold us accountable for sin. You need to be willing to ask your spouse or a close friend, oh, this is a tough one, or an adult child, right? Where do you see sin in my life? Embrace yourself. Don't ask that question unless you're prepared not to snap back. Be ready. Remember, Paul's severe letter was one of the means God used to bring about repentance for the Corinthians. And it might well be the honest, painful words of a friend that God would use to help you. So ask one, someone close, what do you see? How am I doing? Now, I'm out of time, but I want to end with why. We, we always need to go back to why something like this is so important. Because with, without the gospel... This could just be a works, an exercise in works righteousness. Why do we want to seek genuine repentance in 2021? Well, please be clear, it's not because we're trying to earn our right standing with God. Please be clear, we don't seek genuine repentance because Jesus got me in, but it's up to me to keep myself in. No, again, if that were the case, we'd be in a world of trouble because even our best efforts are tainted with sin. No, the reason... We want to be people who are constantly putting off sin and putting on righteousness is found in what's already been done. It's, it's grounded in the very gospel itself. It's grounded in the reality that our God came to sinners like us and said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. We serve a God who is so kind to us. He doesn't say, oh, you sinned seven times, you're out, you're cut off, like we're prone to do. Oh, how about 70 times seven? We serve a God who says, come to me. I know you're struggling with that sin. I know that's an area of weakness. Come to me. My grace is sufficient. Come to me. We're still working. Come to me. I love you. Friend, you might be here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ. This could be the day of initial repentance for you. The Lord Jesus came and died for sinners. And I would plead with you to look to Christ. For believers, it's really no different. We look to Christ every single day. Every single day when we pursue Him in repentance, there's a 
responding to the reality as we confess our sin that we have been forgiven. And thus we repent, we live out of the overflow of what Christ has already done, out of being overwhelmed with His kindness and His mercy that is new every single day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for new beginnings. Lord, I thank you for a new year. Thank you for a new day. I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, I pray for myself. Pray for our elders. Pray for our deacons. I pray for our members. I pray for those who are visiting our church. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would lead us to repentance. Father, if there are any here who don't yet know you, I pray that they would repent and believe in Christ even today. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to live a life of looking to the cross, saying as we're about to sing, Jesus, thank you, and living our lives out of the overflow of that reality. We thank you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.